Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, we're thankful that you're here. If you will, we open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. In just a few minutes, we'll begin there. We will not have slides uh, for that tonight. And so I'd encourage you to open your Bible, or if you need to borrow a Bible that's in the pew there, it'll be about page 1015. 1015, the Bible uh, that's in your pew. Uh, we're excited about this evening, uh, the opportunity to worship God first and foremost, but then the opportunity to help each other. Keep in mind that the ministry fair uh, that will take place of, of offering uh, help to uh, those that are searching for work, for jobs, and those that would have connections at their workplaces or know of potential places to work, you are invited. It was already mentioned in the announcements, but we want to give you a reminder, just right after services this evening in the fellowship hall, just across the foyer, and uh, if you can help others that are looking for work, you don't have to stay at that a long time. Just show up, make those connections, let it be known in what way you could help, and if you're looking for work, we want you to be there. That's why this is taking place. Shannon Buckner is our deacon that is working uh, in that area, and we appreciate so much uh, that he is doing that. Any of us that have looked for work, we know that can be a stressful time. And we also know that it's a very important time in life. And so uh, we want to help each other during all times of life and especially some of those bigger moments. So be sure and take advantage of that. It's exciting to think about the 12questions.net campaign. Uh, how many of you have seen the billboards that have just gone up in the last couple of days? Yeah. They are looking good and uh, questions are continuing to come in, but still it's that personal touch that gets people that they're seeing everything. They're seeing the billboards, the ones that's just come out in the last couple of days. They're seeing those, uh, but they need someone to give them that little push of, hey, have you gone there? Be sure, we'd love to have your question. Please do that at work, do that at home, uh, and, and with your neighbors around you, do it in the community. Also, I know you can't see it from where you are, but this postcard right here will be going out uh, to somewhere between 15 to 18,000 homes. Now keep in mind, that's not individual, that's homes. Uh, sometime later on this week. And uh, it too is just encouraging people to go to the website and to ask their question. Now at the very beginning of July, this campaign becomes 12, you want to fill in the blank? Answers.net. And uh, we will reveal what the 12 questions are. And, and it'll be, hey, Mount Juliet, here are your top 12 questions. We'd love for you to come and join us as we seek to look into God's holy word to see what those answers would be. And at that time, we can tell them at what time that week that specific question will be asked. We can even tell them who's going to be answering it. And uh, that leads us to this. When we go out door knocking, we're inviting folks to come to the event that is taking place July 13th through 16th. That's a Sunday through Wednesday. 13th through 16th of July. I'm asking you please remember this. Jot it down. Because everybody here is going to be needed sometime in that time frame. Uh, there will be a place for everybody to serve. Somebody might say, I can't knock doors. There is so many other things that are going to be of a high need. We're going to need over 100 door knockers every day. And that begins on the 11th. And so if you can work throughout the weekend, which would be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're going to need hopefully hundreds on the weekend each day. Uh, but, but then even on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we need over 100 going out every day. And, um, and so we would ask you to go ahead and mark on your calendar what you can do over the weekend. And then 
we'd ask many of you to take one day off. Surely you've got uh, a, a, a vacation day you can take. Surely you've built up some comp. Surely with this much notice, you could go in your boss and say, hey, I either need the whole day or I need half a day off. But uh, we, we need a lot of help. And so that's why we're giving you a heads up several weeks out. And uh, we hope you'll jump in. And uh, we know that Mountain Juliet has never had a problem with people uh, showing up to do a lot of work. And so that's what it's going to take uh, for this. And uh, we're thankful also that we're going to have yard signs that are passed out immediately after service. So if you live on a busy street next to a busy road, uh, we'd ask you to take some of the yard signs. Again, uh, you figured this out, but what we're trying to do is to stir enough interest that after someone sees 12questions.net, 8, 10, 12, 14, 15, 20, 25 times, finally they're saying, I've got to go to that website and see what's happening. Well, it's important, but what's really important is when that interest has been stirred and it turns into 12answers.net and they can click on the icon and they can hear a full presentation answering all of these questions about God. And that's what's going to be amazing. And so this is building up, not just to create questions, but our hope and our plan is to even be pushing this website in August, encouraging people to go where there will be 12 questions answered and they can hear the entire presentations of all 12. And, uh, and, and then, obviously, in addition to that, forming relationships with these people and, and uh, building the opportunities uh, to worship together, to study God's Word together, and etc. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, it deals, in a sense, with two very powerful forces that they can be forces for good or they can be forces for evil. Financial and sexual forces have always moved mankind. And sometimes they move mankind to do the best of things and sometimes the very worst of things. If you were here uh, last week, you know that we studied a lot out of 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, 1 through 8. And it was about taking a brother or sister to court. And that motive could be many things, but what they apparently were doing in verse 8 were they were trying to cheat their brother or their sister. In other words, what seems to be saying there is that they were trying to take advantage financially of a brother and sister. I want to take them to court so I can come home with more money. Now we look at that and we say, surely people wouldn't do that that claim to be Christians. The temptation that some people face to handle financial situations correctly is very, very difficult. I don't say this lightly. I just say this to say, if you don't believe it, you look at how many people have difficult stress in their family after estates are settled. You look how many business partners were very good friends when they went into business and they were very bad friends when they came out of business. Listen, we could go on and on with the details, but the fact is, people dealing wisely with finances is not a common occurrence. More oftentimes, people allow it to move them to do things that they simply should not do. Paul addresses that in that particular thing. And then, you know, if you were here this morning, we began addressing the 9th, 10th, and 11th verse of this very same chapter. And that's where he's going to introduce it in those verses. And then from 12 down to the end, there's going to be one theme. And that one theme is sexual immorality and how we need to understand. Remember, that's where we began this morning. He's writing many verses, not necessarily to give us 
direct command after direct command after direct command. More so, he's writing this to say, I want you to understand. And so in verse 9 and 10, he says, I want you to understand if you do these things, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, he says, I want you to understand that if you have done these things, you can be forgiven. Such were some of you. But then, going back to what he said in 9, but he seems to elaborate upon it in 12 and 13, he says, I want you to understand, it's easy to be deceived about these things. Now in 12, and, and, and it's not easy to understand exactly what Paul meant here in 12 when he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Well, we know Paul did not mean all things are lawful. Paul is not going to say, it's fine now, we've changed our mind. Just a few verses back, we said that it was unlawful to commit fornication, adultery, or to be a drunkard, or covetous, etc. But now, just two or three verses later, everything's changed. Now you do whatever you want to do. We know that is not the message that Paul is giving here. So what is the message that he's giving? What some scholars have said is that in these two verses, what he is doing is going back to that topic of deception, and he's saying, let me tell you some things that you guys are saying in your culture, in your society, and it's just not the way you're saying it. It may have very well been that they were saying, now that we are Christians, we have liberty in Christ, and all things are lawful for us. You remember in Romans 6, it's a very similar thing. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, it was that idea that some, very many of the New Testament Christians apparently struggled with the idea of God's grace giving us license and permission to do whatever we wanted. And that very well may be what Paul is addressing here. He says, oh, so you think the grace of God is giving you permission? And he's saying, no. The law of God helps us, see there in 12, do the things that are helpful. All things are lawful for me. In other words, that may be what they're saying, but notice, he says, I'll not be brought under the power. In other words, here's what you keep saying. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do things that are helpful. Here's what you keep saying. All things are lawful. I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. But do you notice what he's saying there? There are many things about sexual immorality that a good reason to avoid them is they simply don't help anybody. You want to hurt a church family? Have a bad reputation. Let the people in high school you go to high school with know, number one, you're a Christian, and number two, you're sexually immoral, and see how your influence goes at school. Let the community know that you have a mistress on the side, and yet you still go to church every Sunday, and see how many people say, oh, I want to go visit that church. It'd be just the opposite. <laughs> Oh, if that's where they go, I don't care anything about the Lord. I don't care to go there at all. Sexual immorality is never going to be linked with the idea of helpful. Sure, the reason I do that, it's helpful. It doesn't help relationships, even the ones that's sharing it. It doesn't help. It hurts relationships. It doesn't help influence. It doesn't help integrity. It doesn't help spirituality. Listen, you can't fill in one blank that says it helps, unless you're going to say it helps the cause of Satan and start going in that route. But notice the second thing that he says, I don't want to be brought under the power of any, the last part of verse 12, and that is the very fact that it is powerful. 
And so are you going to move into that domain where you say, I'm going to allow darkness to rule over me. Listen, you and I need to understand if we're going to allow darkness to rule over, it will take control. We don't move into the area of sin and tell Satan how far we want to go. We move over into the area of sin and we allow him to be our master. And you better believe he has a way of taking us further than we thought we would ever go and keeping us longer than we thought we would ever stay and costing us more than we thought we would ever pay. But instead, what if we say, I do need someone to reign in my life and I'm going to let the Lord rule in my life. I want to allow Him to have the power in my life and I don't want substances or sexual addiction or anything to take over the power of my life. Now in verse 13, he probably was giving them another example how in their culture they were believing a lie. They were believing the deception. Notice what he says in 13. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now let's say this is appropriate to the audience that we're speaking to. They probably had a saying that began with the first part of that verse, and their saying probably went a lot more detailed after that that Paul simply thought it wasn't appropriate to say the rest of the saying. In other words, he says, sure, we know what you always say. You talk about that your belly is for food, so what do you do? You give your belly food. And he probably their saying had some other body parts and said, you know what it's for, and so you do it. Notice he immediately gave the solution, if you will, to that. We've been talking about problems and solution. Look again at the middle of 13. He says, no, you've got that wrong. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, he says, if you think that sexuality is just a biological function like the stomach becoming empty and craving food and you give it food and then you think sexual desire is just like an empty stomach and you fulfill it and then you say, it's just like drinking a glass of water. That's all it is. He says, you've missed it. Our society treats this topic in that way. It's nothing more. As a matter of fact, if it is anymore, it's glamorized much more. But it's not the idea that it is something that should be dealt with in a beautiful, respectful, honorable way. And God would define that honorable way. Now for those that would argue, it's nothing more and nothing less. I think I shared this with you about a year ago, and so I'm not going to go into great detail, but I just want to remind you of this. Those that would argue that it's nothing more or nothing less, we have a very sad, real example that proves to us that it's a lot more. And we could go into a lot of other examples if it was a, a different setting. But the reality is, if it was simply a biological function, about 20% of rape victims are hurt physically. That's it. I don't mean that disrespectful. I'm just saying it's only about 20% of rape victims that are hurt physically. Do you think there's anybody on earth that looks at the other 80% and says, there's nothing wrong with you. 
What, what do you mean you're still having problems? What do you mean you're still having nightmares? What do you mean you're still having times of anxiety and depression and fear? What's wrong with you? It's just a glass of water. That's all it is. Isn't it interesting that no one says that? Why? Because there's a lot more to it than a biological exercise. There is an intimacy and an involvement of every part of the body that God designed to be shared only with a husband and a wife, two that are committed to each other. And that kind of relationship, now think about the way we are created and the way you use what is created. We are not designed to be able to function in a healthy way when we manipulate that creation in a way it wasn't designed. Listen, going for four or five years with four or five different partners, and then people wonder why they're, they have times of anxiety. Why is my life so difficult? Why? You have been treating your body in a way it's not designed to do. Just like you look at someone who's been raped and you say, that, that's not the way your body was designed. And I know that person didn't invite you, but I'm just saying, you look at that and say, it's not designed for that way. Of course you're having problems. Do you realize the same thing is true in all of the other perversions? Our young people that are having premarital sex and then they're having difficulty in their relationships and they're having difficulty in their self-esteem, of course you are. You weren't designed to do that. You don't go through that and come out a healthy person. Now, to what degree are you injured? I don't know how to measure that. But I'm simply saying, you're not designed for that. To be in your 20s or 30s and have multiple relationships, because I lived with him for a year, I lived with her for two years, I lived with him. We're not designed for that. And so we look at our world, and how many times, how many times have we looked at people and we said, wow, this world is just full of people that, that are hurting so much and they're messed up so much. I'm not saying everything goes back to sexual immorality, but I'm telling you this. You remove sexual immorality from a culture and you let them go a generation or two, you will see an entirely different state of mental health. I'm not saying all of it would be removed, all the challenges of mental health, but a huge degree of them would be. We are not designed to treat this beautiful function that God created that really is a function that's only being interwoven uh, through a committed relationship in marriage and we treat it like it is a glass of water and then we wonder why we're falling apart. That's what Paul's addressing. He says, sure, you're having problems. You're still living by that old saying. The belly is for food. Give it food. Other parts of your body for other things, give it to them. And he says, no. Now that you're Christians, your body's for the Lord. And the Lord is for your body. Now over the next few verses, we don't have time to study tonight, but it's very beautiful. He likens this relationship to us being married to Christ. We're the bride, the church. Christ is the groom. And we are not to be joined to a harlot. We're to be joined to Christ. And so there has to be a decision here. Are we going to, to live a sanctified life and join up with Christ? Or are we going to live in the world and misuse our body in the way it's created? 
All of this. It's as if over and over the Lord is saying, without using the words, as if it's, it is as if He is saying, don't you understand? Don't you understand? Don't you understand you can't inherit the kingdom of heaven? Don't you understand there's still hope? If you've done this, you can be forgiven. Don't you understand that there are a lot of lies being told in your society? Let me help you to understand why those are lies. Don't you understand that you're actually supposed to be married to the Lord? You're not supposed to be married to this immoral way of life? And then finally we come to verse 18 and it kind of stands us on our head because it's not written in the same way the other verses are written. All of a sudden it's not just simply don't you understand and he says, whoa, I want to give you a short, direct commandment here. Look at that simple sentence in verse 18. In my Bible, it's only three words long. Flee sexual immorality. This direct command, the you is implied. You flee sexual immorality. Everything else has been about, let me help you understand, let me help you understand, let me help you understand. And finally he says, have you heard enough? Do you understand? Now you want to hear the command? Don't just not do it. You get as far away from this as you can possibly get. Brethren, what could we say tonight to convince every one of us to do that? What could be said tonight to convince your preacher to do that, convince your elders, your deacons, to convince the people sitting on the pew, to convince every member of your family, to convince you, to convince the oldest and the youngest here? What could we study tonight from God's holy word to convince us to not just say, okay, I, I, I get the idea that this is probably not something good and maybe I should stay away from it. And Paul would say, no, no, that, that's not at all going to work. This is such a powerful force that you don't just casually face this when you come out all right. This is when you stand your ground and you say, I will run from it before I stand around it. How do we flee it? Will you turn back with me? I, I love any time the Bible gives direct command and then somewhere else in the Bible, it gives a very detailed story and uses almost the same words. You probably know where I'm going, right? Uh, turn back, if you will, to Genesis, the 39th chapter. We see an example of this from a godly man who did exactly what was commanded. Now I know what was commanded was over in the new covenant, but still the providence of God would be able to know as, as in, in his awesome wisdom, him bringing scripture together that knowing you and I are going to hold in our hands, knowing we're going to be studying out of this book. He knew that Paul would write that to flee sexual immorality. He knew that what Joseph was doing and what would be recorded would be read uh, at the same time. And, and how powerful is this? You remember Joseph is sold into slavery and as a slave he is sold into Potiphar's house as a servant but because he is a child of God and he does God's will he does well in work he is trustworthy a man of integrity so he starts being promoted and as he is promoted if you'll, you'll notice in verse 3 it says and his master saw that the Lord was with him and in verse 2 it said the Lord was with Joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of the master so you know, several times I've been trying to say to you this year is because of this idea of kingdom living, living in, in the kingdom. If we live in the kingdom, we live a life that God can bless. And if we live so that we can receive God's blessings, only then can we be a blessing to others. See, that's exactly what is happening here. Joseph is being blessed by God. And what happens? 
Potiphar says, wow, I have this guy working as a servant in my house and things are just better. I want to promote him. We cannot be a blessing to others when we will not live a life that first God can bless. And so let's look at this. He is now in this home and he is promoted to second in charge. Notice this, the, the last sentence of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. You know what that's saying, right ladies? It came to pass that after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. You know what that means, right? And I'm not trying to just be funny when I say this because I want you and I to grasp how does this apply when I leave here and when I go to work tomorrow and, and when I go in the community and I go among some of my, my friends, what does it mean to flee fornication? Do you see what Joseph is seeing? Joseph is around this house and he is picking up, no doubt, on the fact my master's wife which, by the way, according to the way they usually picked out wives and the wealthiest individuals chose kind of like a beauty pageant almost, there's a good chance that his wife was gorgeous. So here's a young man. He's single. He's been sold into slavery. He's far away from parents. He's far away from where he could gather in his religion to worship. He's far away from almost anybody he's ever known. And he looks over at this master's wife, noticing she continues to stare at me. He knows what's happening. And then she says, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We're going to come back in a minute to that last sentence there, that last question. But let's continue reading, see the story. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. See, this continued. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work that none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. What'd he do? Flee. Sexual immorality. He literally did it. How did he have the strength, the wisdom, the conviction to be able to do this? Because if we can't figure this out, how are we going to figure it out in our own life? Number one, I'd like for you to see that at the end of verse 9, where he asked this question, he used the pronoun I. How can I do this great? In other words, we hear Joseph here taking responsibility for himself. 
Well, what could I do? My brothers mistreated me. I was an abandoned young man. I was so poorly abused and mistreated. A slave, a prisoner. You really expect me to have the strength? Finally, I have someone that accepted me. Finally, I had someone that wanted me. Do you realize how long it had been since someone had wanted me? He says, I've got to take responsibility for me. I am responsible for me. No excuses. No believing lies. I am responsible for me. Are you listening? You are the only one that can keep yourself from sexual immorality. Your parents cannot keep you from it. Your children cannot keep you from it. Your spouse cannot keep you from it. As much as your brothers and sisters in Christ would love to, there is no one here that can keep you from it until a person says, it's my responsibility. I am responsible for me. I'm not believing the lies. I'm not starting down that road. I am going to stop that journey as it begins, not see how close I can get and see if I can end. Notice the second thing that we see here. What did he call it? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice he didn't call it a love affair. That's the biggest joke in the world. Agape is a decision to do what's right and best for someone. According to Romans, the 13th chapter, if we love our neighbor, we do not participate in sexual sins. Why? Because if we love them, we would not want to condemn them. What did we study all morning this morning? We can't inherit the kingdom of heaven and be guilty of this. So if I am enticing someone into sexual immorality, actually by my action is what I'm saying is, I don't love you. I am helping you separate from God right now. Notice he, he didn't call it anything except what God called it. Wickedness and sin. Our entertainment industry doesn't call it that. Our friends that are part of the world doesn't call it that. And I tell you what's going to be a shame if we in the church ever stop calling it that. I think about seeing a grown woman, I, not 20 something. And I'm not saying a 20 something woman's not grown, okay? I'm just saying she lived a few years. I think about seeing her sit in my office and cry like a baby. Because she couldn't get a man to marry her because they had no right to be married. At that point, she didn't care what God thought. She didn't care what was right. I just love him and I want him. And if I don't get him, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm sitting there thinking about to just pull my hair out. I said, do you know who you're talking to? Do you expect me to coddle you and say, I'm so sorry. I know that you're infatuating this man that it would be adultery for you to marry him. Do you think God is going to look down and say, poor broken hearted thing, go ahead and condemn your soul. But you know what that woman would not call it? 
She wouldn't call it sin. And she wouldn't call it wickedness. I beg you today. Do you have enough conviction that when you see it on TV, in real life, or in any situation, will you say in your mind as you see it, that is sin. That is wickedness. And if you have a friend that comes up and asks you, a friend from the world, and they say, hey, I'm thinking about so-and-so, what do you think? Because in this day and time, so-and-so very likely is married. Are you willing to say, you really want to know what I think? I'll tell you what I and God thinks. It's sin and wickedness. That's what it is. We're never going to flee from something that we love and want to draw close to. But when we recognize what it is, it's sin and wickedness, that changes everything. Ah, he took responsibility. Let me tell you what it is. It's sin and wickedness. In his mind's eye, it wasn't a beautiful woman there. It was sin and wickedness. Now, notice the third thing at the end of this where he said, this great wickedness and sin against God. Now, he had already implied that if he participated in this, it was going to be a, a wrongdoing, a sin, so to speak, against his master. He'd already implied that. But see, that's not the highest priority of why to not do this. The highest priority is just against God. David and Bathsheba, you think he didn't sin against Uriah? Bathsheba's father was one of those 37 mighty men. David has two of his 37 mighty men out fighting for their lives to protect him. And he's committing adultery with one of them's wife and one of them's daughter. He sinned against some of his closest individuals. You'll go a step further. Bathsheba's grandfather was David's counsel advisor. He sinned against some of those that were the closest in his influence and relationships. But David was right to say in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. Because ultimately, all the other people he had sinned against, he had sinned against them because it was against God. I want you to just hear these words. Against God. Why should you and I avoid sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is against God. Do you want to stand with Him or against Him? And that's what all these verses in 1 Corinthians 6, what He's explaining over and over. You can be either, you can be either joined to your groom, the Lord, or you can be joined through the idea of sexual immorality and harlotry. You're either going to be with Him or you're going to be against Him. Paul says, I want you to flee. Joseph does it. We ask Joseph, Joseph, how'd you do it? Number one, I took responsibility. Number two, I believe it is what it is. What is it? 
It's great wickedness and it's sin. But number three, I will do anything to make sure that I am never against God. What would you have to do in your life to make sure you never stand in opposition to God? But then finally tonight, I'd like for you to notice what we read at the end of verse 12 where she called him and she said, lie with me. Notice what he did. He left his garment in her hand, fled, and ran outside. There has to be an urgency and a priority. An urgency that says, I will never stay around this sin. And a priority that says, I will leave whatever I have to leave in order to avoid this sin. I only say this because of the number in this audience. I don't say this for any specific person. But there's probably someone here that needs to go into their job and resign tomorrow. Because you've already gotten too close to someone. And what you need to do at this time is you need to run. You need to flee. There's probably somebody that needs to sell their house because they've probably gotten too close to some neighbors. How did it begin? Joseph, no doubt, caught her staring at him. You know, there are stares. There's flirtatious remarks. There's compliments. There's admiration. There's the additional pumping of the heart that we're not to have for anybody on earth except our spouse. Whenever that is triggered and we continue walking down that path, it is time for us to come to our senses. I take responsibility. Recognize what we're doing, this great wickedness and sin. Realize we are not going to go to someone that will stand us against God. And so then what can we do? We've already started down that path. The only thing we can do now is run. Flee. Get away. What more noble cause could you have to transfer jobs, to move to a different place, even if it's a different town, to have new friends? People do it every day for other reasons. Why not do it to say, I want to stand with God. But our wisdom is, create boundaries so that we do not allow those first few steps to begin. Could we end tonight almost where we began this morning? And I think if you were here this morning, this would mean a little more to you, but I want to invite all of us back to Proverbs. I'll remind you that we read about 10 or so verses this morning in Proverbs 6. In verse 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. And we talked all day long because Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talked all day long about this topic, trying to get us to understand it. And it really wasn't until we get to verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 6 that he says, now if you understand all this, let me give you a direct command. And the direct command is, 
Not only don't do it, flee, run away from it. Solomon is going to speak some more to his son about this. And by the way, fathers, uh, we all need to know Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. If you haven't studied that with your son, I'd encourage you at the right time to study Proverbs with your son, but especially uh, these three chapters. But we see out of 32 of the sixth chapter, this fear was that his son would lack understanding and move in to relationships that would cost him his life and his soul. And now he gives an example of this in the seventh chapter in verse six. Will you read with me with very little comments? But I just want you to notice he's pleading for his son to have understanding and he's going to show him an example of a young man that did not have understanding. And notice what it cost him. <coughs> I'm sorry. <coughs> read with me if you will. Proverbs 7 verse 6. For at the window of my house I looked through my lattice. I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding passing along the street near her corner he took the path to her house he should have been fleeing in the twilight in the evening in the black of the dark night and there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and crafty heart she was loud and rebellious her feet would not stay at home in the times she was outside a time in open square lurking at every corner so she caught him and kissed him with impudent or shameless face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me today. I paid my vows, so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. I found you. I spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of the love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey and he's taking a bag of money with him. He'll come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. He should have been fleeing. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snares he did not know it would cost his life now therefore listen to me my children pay attention to the words of my mouth do not let your heart turn aside to her do not stray into her paths for she has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Flee sexual immorality. such were some of you we can be washed we can be sanctified we can be justified and thank God there's not any of us here perfect but we can be redeemed 
But with that life of redemption comes a higher standard, a higher calling. Let us not be foolish enough to go back. Can we help you tonight? We'd love to walk with you. We'd love to encourage you. If you're ready to be immersed into Christ, we'd love to assist you. If you want prayers, strength and encouragement, forgiveness, we'd love to pray with you. And please, whoever in this audience right now that's struggling, don't believe the lies. Don't give in. Don't give up. Flee. Stand with God and not against God. Your soul and your influence is worth too much.